What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate history, mythology, philosophy, and how they intersect in our popular culture. As always, I am very, very excited to be here. However, I must admit, dear Midnight Myth listeners, I'm also a little nervous on I'm this one. I'm a little nervous too. We've been doing this for a while, and generally speaking, I approach every podcast with a high degree of confidence. And I'm not saying I feel inconfident or unconfident today. Rather, I do feel a little nervous because we are starting our conversation that will usher in the end of a storytelling era that can only be described as prolific, as monolithic, as monumental, as the modern myth of our time. And if you're wondering what could that be, you know the answer from the Midnight Myth perspective. We are going to talk Star Wars. We're going to talk Star Wars. Uh, This is not the first nor the last time that we will talk Star Wars on the Midnight Myth, but uh, it is certainly... Uh, One of the times that we, I think, are most uh, unsure of what lies ahead and the most uh, uncertain of what we are saying in terms of what we're going to contribute to this conversation because we are here at the precipice just before The Rise of Skywalker comes out. We're about a month out from the release of the final film in the Skywalker saga. And I don't have to tell you how much Star Wars has meant to both of us individually as uh, podcast hosts, as a couple, as a married couple, what Star Wars has meant to us. We literally had a Star Wars themed wedding. So you know this is an important story to us and that we probably wouldn't be here doing the Midnight Myth if it weren't for Star Wars, if it weren't for uh, you know how much we have invested in these characters, how much we have invested in the underlying uh, schema for what Star Wars has laid out for storytelling for years to come, and what it's taken from ancient myth. Like this is this is so much at the core of what we do. So it's a big episode for us. We're excited about it. We hope you are too. We hope we can contribute something to this conversation that is new or at least opens up a different level of your perspective. Yeah, and there's so much ink, both in the literal and digital sense, spilt around the phenomenon of Star Wars. 
It has been analyzed and discussed. It is the story of our modern era. And the fans can sometimes be vitriolic in their responses to Star Wars media. And sometimes we can be completely and totally infatuated. And it runs the gambit. And when you when you go out there and you talk about Star Wars, you realize that you're joining in a conversation that's bigger than yourself. And Star Wars means so much to so many people on so many different levels that I'm excited to just really roll things back. At the end of the Star Wars saga, we want to go back to the original Star Wars movie, Star Wars, also known as Episode 4, A New Hope, and really dive deep into A New Hope and discuss some of its language, both in the film and in the script, to, to kind of pick apart what made this movie the starting point of the phenomenon. We figured that was the best way to talk about this movie at the end of a very long, very epic journey. And I, I gotta tell you, I really am nervous on this one. This story means more to me than any other story out there. You said to the Midnight Myth listeners, we don't need to tell you, but I need to tell you, Midnight Myth, Midnight Myth listeners, Star Wars is my narrative. And then from the Midnight Myth perspective, you have to ask, it's, it's not just okay for us Midnight Myth listeners and participants to just be a fan. We have to dig deeper and ask why. What makes Star Wars the huge commercial behemoth that it is today? How did it get here? What does it mean to be in the shadow of Star Wars? Where should we put Star Wars within the broader conversation of human storytelling writ large, dating back from people in caves to the epic of Gilgamesh to the medieval romance to Charles Dickens to now Star Wars. Here we are. This is the story of our time. And we're going to talk about the source. And I'm just, I'm tingling just even thinking about it. Yeah, it's exciting. We're going to take this big thing and we're going to hopefully make it a little bit smaller for our conversation tonight. And we're here with love. We're here with nothing but love. Obviously, this has been a big week in the Star Wars universe. Disney Plus launched just a couple of days ago, along with the premiere of The Mandalorian. And we are watching that eagerly, excited to see how it expands the Star Wars universe. And also, it premiered some slightly adjusted versions of the original trilogy, including A New Hope, which we rewatched again this week, including the fabulous new line from Greedo, McClunky. So um, however or not you feel about McClunky or whatever changes uh, George Lucas continues to make to the saga, uh, it really says something about the importance of this story that even its creator can't keep his hands off, can't be finished with it, can't ever let it go. So a few caveats. We're going to focus our story around A New Hope. However, we're not going to limit ourselves if it wanders into other Star Wars media um, but primarily that's the, the wheelhouse we want to be in. So obvious spoiler wall is up. We will spoil a new hope if you haven't seen it and potentially all the other Star we'll Wars movies. probably spoil everything up through The Last Jedi. Yeah, it, it is on the table here. So if there's a Star Wars movie you haven't seen yet, watch it first, then come back and see us. And then, you know, other caveats, just one thing to mention before we really begin 
In preparation for this, Laurel and I both reread A Hero with a Thousand Faces from Joseph Campbell. Now, I don't think you have to have read that in order to participate in the conversation tonight, but I do want to say Joseph Campbell is the sort of guiding academic formula for the midnight myth. Joseph Campbell studied mythology and he came up with the idea of the monomyth, which I originally learned, just learned right now, pardon me, was not a term he coined, but he adopted. He actually borrowed it from James Joyce because he was originally a literary scholar of Finnegan's Wake. That was how he cut his teeth. So he borrowed it from James Joyce, which warms my heart. But Joseph Campbell took the principles of psychoanalysis as laid out by such intellectual giants as Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. Friend of the pod, Sigmund Freud. And applied them to the myths and legends of humankind. And that is sort of what we've always lived under the shadow of here in the Midnight Myth. We're applying the principles of psychoanalysis, the idea that there is the story on the surface and there is the story bubbling underneath, and both warrant examination and both are important. And the idea that there is something universal about storytelling, that it says something about us as individuals and as of a collective unconscious. So without Joseph Campbell, there probably wouldn't be a Star Wars and there certainly wouldn't be a Midnight Myth. And we're approaching the Campbellian lens to Star Wars tonight. Well said. And before we roll up our sleeves and get to work, um, Laurel, what do you got in terms of Midnight Myth news, plugs, and how people can give us money? Well, the hugest thing is that this is the week that we are finally telling you how you can enter the magnificent Star Wars Funko Pop giveaway that we have partnered with our friends at the Pop Buncher family for. So if you are a fan of the Midnight Myth, you are going to be a huge fan of the Pop Venture family. They are a wonderful YouTube crew who go around and collect Funko Pops, which are those fabulous pop culture statues uh, that you can make a whole collection of. And we have partnered with them to do a giveaway. Now, here's how you do it. You subscribe to the Pop Venture family. You can find them either by searching through YouTube or by clicking the link in our show notes. And then you're going to go to their latest episode, which is titled Star Wars Giveaway. And you are going to comment on that video, hashtag Midnight Myth or hashtag The Midnight Myth, some version of our name to know that we sent you to them and make sure that you have subscribed to their channel. Uh, and then you're going to be entered in this random giveaway to win uh, a fabulous gift basket, a prize of multiple Funko Pops and some Midnight Myth merch. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you head over there, click on the link in our show notes, hit subscribe, hashtag Midnight Myth, hashtag the Midnight Myth. So that's the first thing out of the way. Boom. And I'm really excited about this partnership. We're talking Star Wars. Star Wars is coming out. The Midnight Myth listeners, I know you want some free Star Wars swag and Midnight Myth swag. So go out there and subscribe and comment. Absolutely. Uh, in the meantime, if you wanted to get in touch with us, if you want to suggest a future episode, if you want to give us any feedback or ask any questions, the best place to find us is on Twitter at The Midnight Myth or elsewhere on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's a contact form there. You can sign up for our email list. We won't email you more than once a month. 
and the website also has blogs and additional content. So there's a whole lot of interesting stuff to find there on the website. You can also find the link to our merch store there. And uh, if you are looking for gifts for the Midnight Myth lover in your life, that is a great place to get your holiday gifts at our merch store. We just added a new item as well, or a new line of items that has Derek's signature sign-off, which is, until next time, be kind, uh, on a bunch of tees, totes, sweatshirts, and other merch, in addition to a whole bunch of other stuff. So that is one great way to support us. The other way is on Patreon, which you'll also find a link to on our website. Uh, and with Patreon, you can just give us a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever you feel comfortable with. $1,000 a month, we'll take that too. Absolutely, we'll take that too. And uh, if you do contribute, then you'll get uh, special perks like shout outs on the pod, uh, discounts on merch, or bonus episodes, all kinds of stuff if you uh, agree to support us in that way. Yeah, and lastly, let's say you'd really love to support us on Patreon, but your budget's a little too tight. You'd like to go and buy some Midnight Myth swag, but you don't really have the cash right now. Just give us a five-star review. That's totally cool as well. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your en- don't tell your enemies. Um, <laughs> Unless your enemies are really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. Let's get going. So should we start with the briefest of briefest recaps of Star Wars A New Hope? Sure. Star Wars A New Hope is a story that takes place in the middle of a galactic conflict with a character named Princess Leia who is smuggling plans which give the blueprints to the Galactic Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, which has the power to destroy an entire planet to her friends at the Rebellion in the hopes that they could analyze a weakness. She smuggles these plans as she is caught to two droids, C-3PO and R2-D2, who make their way to Tantooine and they meet our lead star hero character, Moister Farmer Luke Skywalker, frustrated that he is not able to get out of the drudgery and boringness of being a Moister Farmer, and now is finds himself at the center of a gigantic adventure. He meets Obi-Wan slash Ben Kenobi, who presents him his first lightsaber and introduces him to a thing called the Force, a magical energy force that people can tap into and that they can use to either influence the weak-minded, telekinesis, and ultimately battle evil. This is all juxtaposed to the Galactic Empire and a character named Darth Vader and Grand Moff Tarkin, who are trying to snuff out the Rebellion by torturing and interrogating Princess Leia. Ultimately... In order to get R2-D2, which has the Death Star plans, to Alderaan, they hire Han Solo and his first mate Chewbacca aboard a, let's say, less savory ship called the Millennium Falcon. Hijinks ensues. We learn that Han Solo is a ruthless mercenary who cares only for money, only until he comes back at the very end to assist Luke Skywalker in blowing up the Death Star. Darth Vader is caught, is left adrift in space, and our heroes, having now helped the Rebellion gain a foothold in defeating the Galactic Empire, are presented with honorific medals with their droids and movie. Nice. Well done. Very concise. Very quick. We all know the fucking story. Yeah, we all know the story. I just want to ask, just to kick this off, I want to be really loose and informal in the beginning because I know we have a lot of really detailed things that we wanted to talk about. But Laurel, could you just... Let me know how you got introduced to Star Wars. What was your first experience with it? What were your first reactions to it? And how do those reactions 
then compare to your reactions to watching A New Hope now? Oh, oh, wow. That's a huge question because I'm not sure I fully remember all the details of how I got introduced to Star Wars. I know I was very young. Um, and I think similar to, you know, we had this conversation about Labyrinth last week of how did you first see Labyrinth? I think I also first saw Star Wars in the theaters in a uh, sort of return to the cinema that it was in. At least um, I, I know I saw Empire Strikes Back in theaters. So I'm not sure exactly what the order was, but I know that I uh, was introduced to it very young and that I did see uh, at least one of the movies on the big screen. Um, I was really enchanted by these movies right away, even though I saw them much later after they had come out. Um, but I don't think I recognized how deeply, how much they meant to me until I was a teenager. I think that's when I really started to rewatch these movies and be like, these are more than just uh, a space opera. These are more than just fun. These are more than just action adventure. This is something that means a great deal to me. These are characters who tap into something deep and universal. This is uh, a story of a great and powerful force that binds the universe together that I feel like I have access to as well as Luke Skywalker. Uh, so I don't know if I can tell you the exact particulars of that, but I know that over time I realized the depth of this and realized how much it meant to me as uh, a movie watcher and as a storyteller myself. Now, having just rewatched A New Hope right now before recording this podcast, how do you feel about that particular movie? And have you had any new reflections, meditations, um, watching it now at, as an adult compared to a kid? And take that question any way you want and run with it any way you want. <laughs> wow. Uh, thank you for that freedom there. Um, you know, there, there's an important element to include in this, which is that, of course, now I am educated in the Star Wars universe. I am someone who has gone to see uh, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, not to mention the prequel trilogy. I am someone who has been immersed in the Star Wars universe when I go back and watch uh, A New Hope. So I'm watching it infused with this incredible weight, infused with its past and infused with its future and with this anticipation for the fact that it is about to come to a close. So it's a very emotional experience for me watching A New Hope uh, as an adult right now. There are uh, tiny little details that I pick up on as parallels to the past and the future of Star Wars. But there is just nothing, there is nothing that compares to watching Luke Skywalker step out of his home and look at the dual sunset, the binary sunset, and gaze up into the, the fantasy of the adventure that he hopes to have someday while the, the fabulous John Williams score swells up behind him. I cannot articulate to you how intense those goosebumps are how much I feel at, uh, you know, here knowing where Luke's story doesn't necessarily end, but certainly pauses in The Last Jedi. Um, it's an extraordinarily emotional experience, just watching, um, watching this again and feeling like I'm right here in the middle of something that is uh, very powerful and that has a very rich past and a very rich future. Yeah, I love that. You know, one of my just 
first reflections walking out of A New Hope now, realizing that when I go back and rewatch the original trilogy, rarely do I pick A New Hope. I usually pick Empire or Jedi. Or Jedi, yeah. Depending if I'm feeling a little more pessimistic and cynical, yeah. I would pick I would pick Empire. Empire yeah. If I'm feeling more optimistic and youthful and fun, I'd pick Jedi. And I'd always pick those two. And it's been such a long time since I've actually sat and rewatched A New Hope start to finish, completely sober-minded and paying like very close attention. And a few just interesting things that I picked out. One, Darth Vader's not all that threatening in this. Right. And I think that is also colored by the idea that I know how threatening he'll be in Empire and in Jedi. But in this one, I'm like, he's kind of playing second fiddle bad guy to Grand Moff Tarkin. Grand Moff Tarkin seems in the hierarchy of the Empire, a peg above Vader. Granted, Vader has the like incredible James Earl Jones voice, the amazing, iconic samurai slash phallic costume. The ability to force choke someone across a room. Yeah, but it is Grand Moff Tarkin who's just like, Vader, enough of this. And he's the one who calls the shots when it comes to whether you fire the Death Star or not. And Vader seems to be playing second fiddle there. He doesn't feel as dangerous of a villain in this one, knowing that in Empire, how dangerous he becomes, where he's just like, brutally murdering his subordinates that yeah. he perceives has failed him, you know, like, so I thought that was an interesting, like, Oh, Vader really isn't the main, main bad guy in this. It's really grand Moff Tarkin. I'd kind of forgotten that. Um, the other thing I thought too, I think there is an element of sincerity in the script that I don't know if it exists today or if it could, and I will be very specific. Luke sees Aunt Owen and, I'm sorry, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru burned alive. He comes back and he just looks at Obi-Wan and says, I want to know, I want to learn the ways of the Force. I want to be a Jedi like my father before me. There's nothing for me now here. And I'm kind of messing up that quote. But the sincerity and simplicity and power in those lines. I remember I paused and I looked at Laurel. I'm like, these lines, they remind me of like the most important words you can speak. For example, at your wedding saying, I do. Really simple, not very poetic, but powerful. And like, I will be a Jedi like my father before me. There's a simplicity in the language that has this iconic, time-tested, mythic feel. Like, I'm making a pledge now, a pledge that I will not be able to undo or not be able to undo easily that I thought was rather brilliant, to be honest. Yeah, well, it's contractual, right? It's it's much like I do, or it's much like I swear to tell the truth, so help me God. There is something about it that uh, you, you he's saying exactly what he means. There is no subtext here. He's saying, there's nothing for me here. I want to be a Jedi and I like my father. I am going to do this now. I am accepting my call to adventure. And that is, um, it, it's almost too easy. It's almost too direct and too straightforward. And that's because the characters in Star Wars A New Hope are archetypal, are you know the classic wide-eyed hero in Luke Skywalker, or are the strange old wizard hermit in Obi-Wan or Ben Kenobi are the stalwart loner in Han Solo or the clever princess 
in Princess Leia. These are characters who exist within a very deep and ancient framework, a prehistoric framework, if you will, and are uh, they don't frequently step out of it within A New Hope. And I think this is very deliberate and very intentional, that this is a story where these characters are designed to fit within those tracks. While they do have their subversive elements, you can see our Princess Leia episode for how much she subverts the uh, typical princess narrative, at least in the modern slash Disney perspective, but they are fitting into a mythic framework and we buy into it because of that. We buy into it because we know who they are right off the bat and we don't need them to necessarily be particularly deeply drawn. I think later on in the saga, they will adopt that. Their psychology will become more complex uh, and their relationships will become more intense and more intricate. And I think we'll be ready for that. But we had to start here. We had to join them uh, on this mythic path, on this predestined path as archetypes. I'm glad that you brought that up. It makes me think of a few things. Permit me a little bit of a boomerang slash yeah, side yeah. tangent here. In the ancient world, it was believed that words were a source of literal magic. This is where we get the concept of a curse word, the ability to curse one by saying something. So if I say, I curse you, I have literally done something to harm you. This is also where we get the idea of dueling for honor over an insult. If I say that you're a worthless maggot, you've become a worthless maggot and you must prove yourself otherwise. Uh, at least you be a worthless maggot for the rest of your life. And this is where the art of rhetoric in the ancient Greek sense comes from. And rhetoric is the ability to use words to craft arguments. And the idea is that the words themselves are inherently magical and powerful. You must use them carefully. At least you could in invoke the wrath of the gods. You could damn the wrong person. You could bless the wrong person. Every word that you said, in particular in public, mattered in a magical and literal way. One thing that we see in the Jedi, in particular with Obi-Wan Kenobi, is that he's able to use words through the Jedi mind trick to literally manifest his will on others, taking that concept literally. But then if we dig deeper under the surface, the idea that there is, I must speak this truth that this character feels in this moment, free of subtext, is evoking that sort of ancient style of rhetoric. I can't play games and dance around my meaning because the words themselves are too important and too powerful. I must say what I mean. And I found that this rewatch of A New Hope surprisingly refreshing in the respect that most of the time when I am watching, let's say, Game of Thrones, for example... It's all about subtext. What are the characters saying but not saying? The words become this ballet where people are dancing around the truth of what they're saying and you have to unriddle them and understand the language of the dance. Otherwise, you could misinterpret it and lead to your own death, such as like Ned Stark. What I found refreshing was how this was the opposite of that. This was, I'm going to pledge myself to be a Jedi. This is Han Solo being like, Good against, against remotes is one thing. Good against the living? Now that's something else. A simple truth that a smuggler must live by. The idea that like, hey, 
anything could happen statistically in this galaxy, but I've made a living and I'm going to bet on that living because it's too dangerous otherwise, juxtaposed to Obi-Wan Kenobi. In my experience, there is no such thing as luck, saying that none of this is random or up to chance. And that sort of just very powerful um, set, like dialogue and the deep philosophical well that it draws from and the power that's in those words, I felt very refreshed from. Yeah. Well, and this isn't to say that subtext isn't awesome because the subtext is amazing. Like it takes a very uh, skilled and uh, intentional writer to write subtext successfully. Uh, it's a very difficult process. But in 2019, it is refreshing to hear characters speak their subtext. It's refreshing to hear characters say what they actually mean. You know, the closest I can think of in a recent film to getting toward that kind of sincerity in its dialogue particularly is Wonder Woman. You know, that's a character who says, you know, this is who I am. This is what I support. Uh, I don't care if that sounds awkward to your ear or if that sounds out of place in your society and your culture, but this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. Uh, but attention is drawn to that level of uh, discontinuity with a society that is more comfortable with subtext. So, yeah, and don't get me wrong, I'm not dissing scripts that use subtext in any way, shape, or form. I, in particular, felt refreshed being like, you know, this is actually really amazing. Well, and that's the thing about myth and fairy tale and legend is that people say what they mean, that these are stories crafted with some sort of purpose for the most part. There is either a moral to be taught or there is a lesson to be learned. And there is not necessarily space for people to be saying something other than what they mean. So language is very intentional and language is very important. And we don't have deliberate misdirection. And let's be honest, in day-to-day -day dealings and the way that we as a species need to dialogue with each other, in particular about the most important decisions, whether those are on a micro level, which is like whether or not your aging relative goes into an old folks home or lives with you, or the macro level, which is like whether or not healthcare should be a right governed for all or a private business, it works better if people are open honest and frank and don't hold back and tell the whole truth about how they are thinking and feeling. And so often we find that people are trying to say the thing they want to say without saying the thing they want to say. And it is refreshing to me to be like, you know what? There's something to in more ancient way that we view language. Imagine Midnight Myth listeners, if every word that you said carried literal significance in the world, wouldn't you choose your words differently and more carefully and perhaps better? I don't know. Just food for thought. Well, I think this is really interesting because it's a it, we're focusing on a relatively small detail, but I think it is deeply important. I think that, um, you know, in the way that mythology has disseminated throughout history and time and culture, uh, you know, there's a great, there's the great anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss and his structuralist theory of mythology where he calls mythology its own language. He says myths are a language unto themselves. And I think this is something that follows through into uh, Campbellian analysis of mythology is that there is a symbolic language and there is a literal language to myth and to dream. 
uh, that is deeply important, that we have to listen to these symbols, that their language is not necessarily the one we are most familiar with, but it is a language unto it. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You know, that's a really good transition point right then and there to what we wanted to, to dive into, which is Joseph Campbell talks about in A Hero with a Thousand Face, a thousand faces, pardon me, the difference between like a literal truth and a symbolic truth. And deciphering myth is about deciphering the symbolic truths. One of the examples that Campbell uses is the story of the stork, which he says is symbolically true, but not literally true. And if you're not familiar, it's when a kid asks their parent where do babies come from, they say the stork brings them. And that the stork is a symbolic way to communicate to the baby that to the child, how babies come to be and how reproductiveness happens. When a child actually grows up and receives sex education, they instantly perceive the stork as a lie. To Campbell, it's not a lie. It's a symbolic truth. It's a way to communicate the truth through symbolism and the way to communicate the truth non-literally. And myth represents this. In particular, the hero's journey, which is... In the simplest way to describe it, the hero has to go from a state of comfort and passivity. They have to pass through a ritual that initiates them into the world. They have to, gen- gener- they have to travel through this world, complete trials, and return back home having changed. That's it. That's the basic bare bones of every great mythic story. That is as true for Odysseus as it is to Jesus, as it is to Mohammed, as it is to Harry Potter and Luke Skywalker, as it is to every hero that we know of. And it's important to note when discussing Campbell that Campbell describes his hero journey as a interpretation of myth, not the interpretation of myth. And I think that's really important because we live in a world where a lot of people having seen the success of Star Wars look at the hero's journey as a script template for their own writing. And that's fine, but that's kind of missing the point to me. The point is why do so many stories have these similar beats and what do those say about us as a species? But Campbell also points out you could easily do everything that he did about myth and point out the dissimilarities rather than the similarities So long-winded point here, just want to say that this is one approach to Star Wars, not the approach. And Star Wars fans, I think that's something we need to really internalize as we go into the end of the Star Wars saga, that there's a lot of Star Wars fans out there, and we're going to interpret the ending differently, and that's okay. Yeah, Uh, and Campbell is acknowledging culture. He is acknowledging the fact that like culture accounts for some of this. He is asserting that there is something universal uh, that influences the fact that all of our myths are so uh, deeply connected in some symbolic way 
and that our dreams may or may not follow a similar path, that they may offer a similar language of uh, truth by deception or truth by symbol. Um, but he's also deeply drawing upon psychoanalysis. He's drawing upon the works of Freud and Jung, which are themselves romantic uh, schools of thought. They are 20th, 19th and 20th century schools of thought that it's still deeply under debate whether there is such thing as an unconscious mind, whether Sophocles writing Oedipus was at all uh, interested in the unconscious or whether Oedipus himself had an Oedipus complex. So there's a whole lot of room for interpretation here. Uh, and I think that makes it more interesting to interpret Star Wars in this way, to start interpreting the symbolic language of Star Wars because it's not uh, on our earth. It's not in our world. It's not in our galaxy. It is a totally new uh imaginative universe that George Lucas gave us that does, of course, draw upon some, some genre influences, that does, of course, draw upon some literary and cinematic and mythic influences, but gives us a new vocabulary. Uh, and Joseph Campbell acknowledges this in his conversation with Bill Moyers uh, for The Power of Myth on PBS, which was a seminal and just deeply important uh, a television program for me. It's available on Netflix if you haven't seen it before. It's just fantastic to hear Joseph Campbell articulate his own ideals, but he calls Star Wars like a totally new realm for the imagination. So we get to rewrite and reinterpret these universal symbols uh, that feel grounded in myths that we know, that feel grounded in movies and comic books and novels that we know, but are in themselves, a new vocabulary, which I think is really interesting. Absolutely. So let's discuss some of the symbolic language that we get from A New Hope. Yes. I'd like to start with, I think, I don't know, maybe one of the easier to interpret before we get to some of the harders, but in the course of this conversation, I may be surprised. I'd like to start with the symbolic language of the lightsaber. Let's do it. Um, and I'd like to open this up here to you, Laurel. What do you think lightsabers mean? Why do they exist in this universe beyond the pragmatic that the Jedi and the Sith need weapons? Why lightsabers? Yeah, so uh, you've, you've already said that they need weapons. They need a way to fight. They need some sort of uh, material source of power and violence uh, because this is civil war and this is a fight between the dark side and the light side of the force, so we have to have a weapon. I think it is important that it is a sword because this is a deeply um, uh, embedded cultural reference. Uh, for me, as a devoted follower of the Arthurian legend, uh, it has its uh, connotations in Excalibur uh, as the weapon that is passed down from the father to the son that is inherited and that is a symbol of the son coming into his own as Arthur pulls Excalibur or the sword Clarent from the stone, depending on which version of the uh, legend you're reading, it becomes the symbol of his sovereignty over England or over Britain. And for Luke, it becomes the symbol of his uh, initiation into learning the ways of the force. Um, there is a, a powerful motif in the Arthurian legend that Luke is a, a modern example of, which is called the fair unknown. 
And I've written on this extensively on the Midnight Myth blog. If you wanted to read any more about it, I wrote about this with regard, especially to Jon Snow before season eight of Game of Thrones. But the fair unknown is a motif uh, in medieval literature, especially where a hero is born of a noble bloodline and he is removed from that noble bloodline and raised in the forest or raised in some kind of uh, situation that is removed from the court where he is not close to Arthur, he is not close to the uh, courtly atmosphere or the chivalric tradition, but he is uh, raised by a single mother or something like that. And then as he's growing up, realizes that he has a greater destiny and finds his way to the court somehow. His, uh, his power, his grace, his chivalry, his courtliness can't help but shine through even though he's raised with rustic origins. So there's a few examples in the Arthurian legend, those being Percival, those being um, uh, Gawain's son usually, who is eventually named Sir Le Bel Inconnu, Sir Le Fair Unknown, and Arthur himself is a fair unknown. He's raised away from the court and then realizes his true power. And Luke is a, a powerful example of that. Uh, he is the son of a powerful Jedi Knight who is removed from the court, who is removed from the Senate, who is removed from the world of politics, and yet he finds the force in himself. And that is actualized in him first holding the lightsaber. The purpose of the fair unknown motif is to argue for nature over nurture. It is to say that if one is born with either noble blood or some kind of heroi heroism uh, inherent in his veins, he will become a hero. And Luke is that. Luke is destined to become a hero. All the events of the beginning of the movie, the first uh, act of the movie conspires for Luke to go on his adventure. It is destiny for him to go on his adventure, just as it is destiny for Arthur to pull the sword from the stone. So that, for me, uh, is all spoken in, uh, in the lightsaber's first introduction. I think there's so much to the lightsaber, but that is all spoken in the first introduction of the lightsaber to Luke Skywalker. Woof. Okay, big points there. Yeah. I really love what you're putting down here. I uh, a few responses, thoughts, meditations, because I thought you had a brilliant, brilliant uh, point there. One, where would you put characters such as, we'll say, Perseus and Moses in the fair unknown narrative? The reason why I ask is because both of those from a mythic lens, and to some Moses is not a myth, but so, but where would you put them both separated from birth, from their parents? both left out in the wilderness on their own, both had to come to terms and then became the great leaders and foundational leaders, similar to an Arthur or a Luke Skywalker. Um, would you say that there is a similarity amongst at least those four characters? I think that's a really interesting connection. And while both of those deal with, uh, you know, a child being cast off for fear of a, a great leader being overthrown. And so therefore those children are uh, raised in obscurity rather than in their uh, kind of noble birthplace. Uh, the Arthurian uh, fair unknown has its own tradition because of its very specific conventions, which usually have to deal with their relationship to Arthur, their relationship to Gawain, uh, the trials that they face when they get to court. So it has its own very specific carved out tradition. But you're right in making those connections because this is a theme we see iterated throughout 
ancient mythology and through medieval literature and into contemporary storytelling. Yeah, if we accept the sort of Cambellian Freudian view of narrative, the first thing that strikes me about the quote-unquote fair unknown is not the sort of um, nature over nurture, but rather the idea of being separated at birth from the mother as the central defining characteristic of these characters. After being separated from the maternal, which is supposed to love and protect, they are left to fend them for themselves on their own in a hostile and threatening world. I can also think of Romulus and Remus, who need to be suckled by a she-wolf, Perseus, who is raised by farmers, we have Luke being raised by farmers. And if I remember correctly, Moses, and I may be wrong about this, was also brought up by common farmers. The distinction that I will draw here is that the fair unknown tradition typically does not remove one from the mother. It does still have, at least in Percival's case, and at least in uh, some other cases within the legend, it does have the character specifically removed from the father, who is the source of the noble bloodline. So there is still the motherly influence. I, I don't mean literally. Yeah, I yeah, mean yeah. psychoanalytically. Yeah. The idea that as an infant you're ripped literally from your mother's arms, who's your first and, and primary yeah. connection and source of both sustenance and emotional love. Yeah, most importantly, you're ripped from that uh, sort of almost amniotic sense of safety and security, the triad that you were supposed to have as an infant. Which then, in, and you're right about the other, you know, um, you know, other aspect of these narratives is that the father is the danger, or sometimes the grandfather is the danger by which the infant gets separated. And I think that lays the groundwork of the underlining Oedipal complex within these narratives. The idea that you are, as an infant, ripped from the mother, often under the orders or direct result of the actions of the father or grandfather, forcing you to descend into this nether world, into the hostile and threatening world, and instead of having a nurturing and loving place to grow and become a self-confident person, you're left stranded. And how does this character then overcome the fact that they're stranded? Even Oedipus had this exact same uh, fate, that he was ripped from the mother under orders of the father and then had to grow on his own, I believe under commoners until he had to then return. So we see this very standard, very mythic, very psychoanalytical framework that Luke is in and that the lightsaber is the first ever initiation into what Obi-Wan Kenobi calls, you know, a broader and bigger life. Yeah. So I love it. I think that's really cool. Yeah, you've taken your first steps into a greater world, I think is what Obi-Wan says. Absolutely. This is is you beginning to cross the threshold, and the lightsaber is the first symbol of that. The lightsaber is also phallic, uh, which we can't ignore. The lightsaber is, you know, uh, something that you can hold in your hand that is really big and bright uh, that I think is important to acknowledge. And it stands in direct contrast to the way of war of this world, which is spaceships and laser guns and laser cannons. An elegant weapon, Obi-Wan calls it. And Obi-Wan says that a more civilized weapon. And in it, there's the idea of connecting uh, to a nostalgia of the past, the idea that there was war in the past. However, that war was more elegant and more civilized to the wars of the current and that there is something lost, and that by handing this lightsaber to Luke, 
there is a symbolic chance of rejuvenating that lost sense. The idea that, yes, there are battles, but these battles must be waged in a more elegant and more civilized way than the way we're currently waging them. And I think there is a psychoanalytical bent to that too. The idea that the battles of the mind, the anxieties and neuroses that we are fighting, is there an elegant way or is there a brutish way? Well, the brutish way would drown them in substance abuse in order to fight them. But the elegant way would be to confront them honestly and openly and engage with them. So I think there is a psychoanalytical way that we can interpret it, plus a literal way that Obi-Wan saying there is a better way of war, a more civilized way of war, if, yeah. if such a thing could ever exist. Yeah, that's great. Totally. Um, other symbolic things I'd like to pick apart, unless you have any other thoughts on the lightsabers. No, I think that's great. I really want to talk about Mos Eisley's cantina. Can we, can we dive into that? Yes, we can. I think it's one of... I mean, I think it's one of the most visually interesting and iconic scenes of the entire Star Wars canon. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker are looking for a freighter pilot to smuggle them to Alderaan. And they go into this cantina. And in this cantina, we are almost overwhelmed by the amount of diversity the amount of aliens, the strangeness of it. And they take time to show us every different alien species. And it is a rough and rugged uh, cantina. Luke almost gets killed. Obi-Wan Kenobi chops a fucking dude's arm off. Yeah. Han kills a fucking bounty hunter right then and there. McClunky. I want to know, in, in the context of the symbolic language of Star Wars, why the cantina? Oh, well, um, you know, I'll go back to the power of myth and Joseph Campbell's conversation with Bill Moyers. He he refers to the Moss Eisley Cantina scene as reminiscent of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island and the Treasure Island seaport uh, that Jim Hawkins and the crew land in before they embark on their adventure. It's a very uh, kind of classic feeling threshold before one embarks on any kind of a journey one has to stop in the way station. Uh, and the way station is a place where everyone is getting ready to embark on their own adventure. I think there is, uh, there is so much grandness and so much epicness that is locked up in that one scene where we see every single permutation and uh, species of alien you can possibly imagine grabbing a drink before they go off on their own adventures. And today, as we see, you know, there are comic books and novelizations and television shows and spinoffs and uh, Star Wars story movies that actually follow some of these creatures on their own uh, journeys. It, it is for me, I don't know how intentional this is, but it is for me this moment of acknowledgement that every single creature in that bar every single creature in that cantina is on their own journey. Uh, and that I think is really powerful that there's an acknowledgement of the individuality and the multitudinousness, uh, multitudity, whatever that word is, but we're just the, making like, up words on the midnight myth. <laughs> just, just the amount of people and beings and individuals there are in this universe and the amount of individual journeys that there are to explore. 
Interesting take on it. I, I think that's cool. I have a counter take. Not, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Not saying that yours is wrong at all, because yeah, I, yeah. I, th- I think you are spot on. I mean, you're quoting Joseph Campbell, which is the inspiration of this entire podcast. So who am I to tell you you're wrong? I think you're very right. I also look at the canteen through the lens of the monstrous. I think the cantina is the den of monsters. I think it's beyond just the den of thieves because we understand the cantina through the perspective of our own human species. And they go to great lengths to dehumanize these creatures. Yeah, I mean, there's a a, a dude who looks like Satan. Literally, there's a one that looks like a demon. Yeah. They, the, it is, there's great pains to make it strange, to make it uncomfortable, and to make it monstrous. To make these creatures look as unbeautiful from a human perspective as they can be. These are not just Tuscan raiders who are, you know, wrapped in blankets with eyes and they make grunting sounds. These are creatures that are highly capable of some form of civilized dialogue couched in the monstrous. And what I mean by some form of civilized dialogue, they're interacting, they're all together, they all look demonic, they all look monstrous, and they all look strange and unusual. There's a literal threshold that Luke can't even cross when he first walks in there because you can't bring the droids in. The droids are not welcome there, as if... Luke is bringing something completely wrong in this sort of demonic world. And to me, it is the journey into the underworld. It is Odysseus on his way home stopping in the underworld. It's Hercules needing to carry Cerebus out of the underworld. It's Aeneas and Virgil and all of the the characters that we know from the epic poems of the ancient world having to descend into hell and make their way out of it. Luke himself fails in this trial because he comes into it too confident, too cocky. He doesn't understand the risks and danger that he is actually um, experiencing. So it exposes that, yes, he can descend into this dark underworld. And what is it literally in terms of the context of the social hierarchies of the galaxy? It is the literal underworld. This is where the criminals are. This is where the smugglers and pirates are. This is the bar in the Wild West where you could kill someone and nobody's going to stop and put down their drink and run away and scream. It's legitimately one of the darkest scenes of all Star Wars ever because it is so brutal and violent in there. You could chop off someone's arm and people will stop for a second and then they'll pick up their blue milk and start sipping and going about their business as if nothing else had happened. What is that if not a Wild West, the subconscious darkness of your mind made manifest and literal. Well, yeah, it's the wild West. It is lawless. It's entirely lawless. You can do whatever the fuck you want. This is the underworld of this, uh, outer rim society, but let's contrast it with where we'll go later. And with what we've seen in the beginning of this film too, because this is lawless violence. And what we're about to see, what we've already seen from the empire is lawful violence is institutionalized violence. So there's an interesting contrast being made between the Wild West, where you can shoot somebody in a bar and nobody will bat an eyelash, and the actual government which can destroy a planet uh, by saying a word. So there's a very interesting kind of thing being set up here as Luke's initiation into his greater adventure takes him through the lawless Wild West saloon 
where he thinks he's seeing the worst of the worst, where he thinks he's in the underworld, but he's really about to be initiated into a greater world that is actually comfortable with an empire that destroys planets, that conducts genocides, that conducts planetcides, like the most incredible mass scale violence you can ever imagine, which makes the Moss Eisley Cantina look tame in comparison. So I think there's a very interesting contrast being set up here. Interesting point. You know, I look at the cantina, at least from the symbolic truth language, as what if every creature that lives in your imagination were all hanging out in one place drinking together and you would walk in there? Well, it's like a dream, right? It's like a nightmare. You can have a dream where you walk into the Moss Eisley Cantina and every like creepy thing from like Pennywise is there and Freddy Krueger is there and uh, you know, somebody cuts off your arm and you just walk away. Like it's very dreamlike. And for Luke, he needs to still go through his initiation with Obi-Wan. He is not able to navigate this on his own. If he were there by himself, these monsters and demons, though not literal monsters and demons, would have killed him. Absolutely. Because he is too innocent and too green to survive it on his own. So pure. And it is Obi-Wan that helps usher him through this threshold, which prepares him to get to usher through the next one, which is the next challenge Luke has to face on his own. Yeah. This is the last time Obi-Wan's going to get him through and out of something, and probably the only time. Yeah. From there on in, after this, Luke's on his own. Your point about lawless violence versus institutionalized violence is also really interesting because if you think of the the worst atrocities in history, it's tough to to say the worst atrocities in history. Yeah, you don't want to you know rank rank suffering. It's a fundamentally a historical term, but <laughs> I'm going to use it in this context for lack of a better term. If you think of some of the most horrible things humans have ever done to each other, it's usually conducted by governments to people. Yeah. And that is true of the transatlantic slave trade, the the Holocaust, Holocaust, the, you know, I could go on and on and on of all of the terrible things that humans have done to each other. It's typically at the hands of, it's been institutionalized of an institution using, you know, horrible shit and violence to suppress, kill, maim, enslave and destroy. Yeah. Which the empire definitely represents. Yeah. That's what the empire is. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's drawing upon, you know, not only the conventions of space opera and sci-fi and fantasy and Western, it's drawing upon our recent history, our recent world history, uh, the Second World War in particular, uh, but so much of what human beings have done to each other in, in the recent past is what George Lucas is drawing on to to fill out this world. He even calls them stormtroopers. Like, come on, he calls them stormtroopers. Which is a term, if yeah. you're not familiar, it, that's the term for Nazi soldiers. Yeah. Um, in particular, I believe, if my history is correct, from the SS, the Secret Service, the like elite Nazi squads, they were called stormtroopers. So he's evoking a Nazi term directly. Absolutely. I'd like to transition to another scene that I'd like to pick apart here. Right. And I want to talk about the trash compactor scene, if you'll permit me. On the Death Star. They're on the Death Star. The heroes have just sprung Princess Leia out of her cell. They are trapped in the detention center. 
Princess Leia grabs Luke's blaster, blasts a hole, and they all jump into the garbage. And they're in a trash compactor that is turned on to compact and crush them. And if it wasn't for C-3PO turning on his comm link and having R2-D2 stop the trash compactor, they all would have been, as Han said, a lot thinner. Yes, yeah, our heroes would have been smooshed. I want to talk about this. So, and the reason I want to talk about this is, one, it is just a really fun, great scene. It's an amazing trial for our heroes to go through. Um, It establishes a lot of the fun group dynamic between Han, Luke, and Leia. In particular, the rift slash connection slash love-hate relationship of Han and Leia is really starting. Um, All of these things that are really great and really cool and just... Three of my, like, goddammit, favorite fucking actors of you all just, time. You see them together and you can't help but just your whole body being kind of on fire. It's so, it just means so much to see them all together. You're like, these are my three heroes that will come to, to define what I think of heroes, right and wrong, and how I view the world for the rest of my life are together for the first time. And their first, like, trial together is how to get out of the trash compactor. But from the Campbellian lens, Joseph Campbell says that water in a narrative always represents the subconscious. Sure, the unconscious, yeah. And when the heroes delve into the unconscious slash subconscious, they are dealing with subconscious thoughts and desires that are bubbling up. Um, In preparation for this, I kind of asked Laura, what do you think of the trash compactor? And you called it the belly of the whale. Yeah a underwater motif. There is dirty trash water. And one of our characters literally gets pulled underwater by a monster, by a serpent like monster, too. a tentacled monster. All we see is a tentacle and an eye. Yeah. That's all we get. So it could be the tail of a serpent. It could be a tentacle. We don't know, but a trash monster almost kills our hero. And if not for the compactor clicking on, you presume would have killed our hero. What do you think from the Cambillian lens or whatever lens you want to use? What's up with the trash compactor scene, yo? Ooh, well, uh, yeah, so it is the belly of the whale. This is as deep as our characters go before they can reemerge. Uh, this symbolically represents, you know, our hero on his journey descending, uh, like you said, into the underworld, leaving his world. Uh, which is full of light, full of sun, full of comfort, full of joy, and going into another world in the search for a boon or uh, some kind of uh, reward or lesson uh, from which he will eventually emerge. That's the kind of space that we are in the hero's journey. Uh, The reason that we have to be in such a dark place is because that's what uh, that's what growing up is. You know, we have to go to a pretty dark place in order to emerge. An important thing that Campbell asserts when discussing the kind of universal hero's journey is that we, as individuals in a society, in any society, in any culture, are the heroes of our own story, are on our own particular hero's journey. And that hero's journey has to do with uh, leaving the nursery, leaving uh, a state of total bliss and comfort and immaturity, and entering a world of maturity and adulthood. And that that can be uh, a journey that is full of trials and that is full of discomfort and that is full of 
dark, dark things, dark thoughts and dark actions and dark feelings. Uh, and this is an ongoing process of life, death, rebirth of illusion as children, where we feel like everything is fine to disillusionment, where we feel like we must get out of this world where everything is the same. We must leave this moisture farm uh, and re-illusionment, where we find comfort and peace with uh, our lot in life. We have found some boon, we have found some reward, and we can return to our world uh, with a new appreciation of it. And we can't get there without passing through the trash compactor. We can't get there without being nearly crushed. We can't get there without symbolically dying to our younger, less mature selves. Love it. As we find ourselves in the trash compactor and as we find ourselves in the waste waters of our own conscious minds or our own lives, constantly being pulled down by the serpents and tentacles of our fears and our anxieties, we cannot rage our way out of this mess we cannot blast our way out of this mess. We cannot un we cannot reason our way out of this through uh, using puzzles or the pieces of the trash themselves to stop the compactor from collapsing us. The only way out is to have an ally on the other side. It's reaching out to others. It's recognizing that we are not alone, that we have someone that we can uh, hold on to, that we have some anchor to the world. Yep. Chewbacca tries to barrel the door down, right? Leia tries to stop it and brace it. Tries to brace it, yeah. Han tries to shoot it. And it is Luke who realizes who had to confront the tentacled serpent himself in order to live. He's the one that realizes, no, I have to throw a lifeline out to something and someone else and ask for help. Please stop the compactor from crushing me. Please, I can't do this alone. And that's what I love about the trash compactor scene. You can't do it alone. None of us can do it alone. We need to reach out to our C-3PO's and we need to talk to our R2-D2's to get out of the trash compactor. And that's something that I find deeply comforting and deeply exciting about uh, contemporary storytelling and uh, the way that uh, that modern movies and fiction and literature have evolved uh, the idea of of this Campbellian hero's journey, because as you could imagine it as just this individual path that one lone ranger walks by himself. Uh, you know, I look to once again Harry Potter with Ron and Hermione. I look to Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Willow and Xander and Giles. I look to King Arthur with Lancelot and Gawain. I look to characters who have embraced the fact that they are uh, they are great on their own, that they have enough in themselves to support their their journey, but they feel comfortable reaching out to others. I think that the introduction of friendship and the introduction of support from others is really quite a beautiful thing that all of us can can take away from the stories that we have. I mean, again, like look to the Avengers. There's no um, there's no Marvel movie, there's no Marvel superhero who succeeds without reaching out to others. Campbell calls myth not a simple morality, but 
to do with the reflections of energies of life. So Star Wars is not simply about teaching people right from wrong, but to reflect the energies of life. I'm going to throw out some terms here that can be loaded, but the idea is we live in a rationalist, postmodernist, secular world, which is to say we live in a world where everything can and should be knowable. There is no actual governing authority on that knowableness, and we ourselves as individuals have to figure it out on our own without any kind of guidance out there. And that is the world that we live in. And Star Wars is the postmodernist, secular, rational myth. And it does so in a way that speaks to us in the way that Gilgamesh spoke to ancient Babylon, to the way that Osiris spoke to the ancient Egyptian, to Aeneas and Romulus and Remus spoke to the ancient Arthur or to the ancient Roman, and to the way that Arthur spoke to the ancient British. And that we need these stories to help us rejuvenate the energies necessary to sustain life. Why? Because we will all end up in the trash compactor at some point. We'll all feel like the walls are moving in with monsters that are trying to pull us into our subconscious and drown us under the weight of our own neuroses, trauma, anxieties. But we need to feel these rejuvenating energies and myth has the ability to unlock those energies. And Star Wars is the secular postmodern version of it. So much brilliant sci-fi out there takes the idea of rationalism to its logical conclusion. Philip K. Dick puts it into terms typically of the dystopia and the bizarre. Arthur C. Clarke puts it in the terms of unlocking the true human potential and the utopia. And Star Wars reverses it and makes it ancient. It takes the sci-fi and puts it in the language of our ancient past and our ancient selves and gives a spiritual model that people living in an era without spiritualism can connect. Uh, yeah, fuck yeah. Uh, that, that says it so well. I just, I can't, I can't even articulate to you how much Star Wars has meant to me. And uh, you know, just to point to the legacy that it has had, there is such thing as a Jedi religion in real life. Like there are people who practice Star Wars as their religion. And I think, uh, you know, there is something about uh, accessing these energies, accessing these archetypal characters, these archetypal stories that, as you said, rejuvenates us. And to kind of carry this forward into the... Uh, the the continuation of these stories we have watched star wars become more more sophisticated in some some spaces we've watched the characters become more complex we've watched the relationships become more complex uh we have watched characters like luke skywalker uh exit their stage of illusion and disillusionment and reillusionment back into disillusionment and reillusionment again in the Last Jedi. We have watched people uh, follow these uh, incredible stages of psychological development, but also archetypal development. And they have, I think, in many ways, mirrored 
our relationship to the story universe and to our culture as a whole. Uh, I think Star Wars is is a myth for our time, and it is also a reflection of us. I think it is us. I think we are Star Wars, and Star Wars is us. I love it. You know, we've only really talked about lightsabers, the cantina, and the trash compactor, and a little bit of background on Campbell. So we have barely scratched the surface of what Star Wars is and what Star Wars means. This, I think, is a great conversation to have about A New Hope. I would, depending upon what you think, Midnight Myth listeners, we would love to maybe do this, but with Empire and Jedi. Yeah. All in preparation of the end of the Star Wars saga. But let us know what you think. If you think you want to hear more about just the traditional let's analyze a Star Wars movie, we'll do it. If this was enough, great. And uh, any final thoughts here, love? Um, I I can't wait for The Rise of Skywalker. As we were talking tonight, I uh, had just a, a momentary... Uh, feeling of grief for the fact that uh, as much as the the first time seeing Han, Luke, and Leia together electrified us, we are never going to see those three people together again. Um, And that just felt very emotional for me. And I just want to, as a final thought here, uh, just dedicate our conversation to the immortal spirit of Carrie Fisher, Uh, just an incredible human being who I am so grateful to have shared some time on the planet with. I really, truly hope, wherever she is, that the Force is with her. She did drown in moonlight strangled by her own bra, so. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind, and may the Force be with you. 